Well, a police officer pulled a young man over one day, and the man, he, he, got, he was a little concerned. He was a little frustrated. And the officer came to his door, and he said, uh, the officer said, do you know why I pulled you over? And the gentleman said, he said, uh, I didn't run that red light. I know I didn't. He said, no. He said, well, I, I know I wasn't speeding. He said, no, no, you weren't speeding either. Well, then, officer, why did you pull me over? And this officer proceeded to say, well, uh, you know that guy that kind of cut you off a little bit ago? Uh, I saw that. And I, I saw you just banging your fist on the steering wheel. And then, and then I saw that guy that when, when, the, when you were driving and the, the light turned from green to yellow to red and you had to hit your brakes real fast and you just started screaming, pounded your steering wheel, yelled at these people around you. And the man said, well, wait a minute. You pulled me over for that. Is that illegal? And the, the guy said, the officer said, no, no. He said, well, then why did you pull me over? He said, well, listen, when I saw you doing that, and then I saw the bumper sticker on your car that said, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? I thought, surely this guy stole this car. <laughs> See, it's so easy for us to appear to be living right on the outside, but what's going on on the inside is really just a mess. It tells another story. Well, today we're in the third week of our summer study through the Minor Prophets. And now these minor prophets are 12 books of the Bible that come near the end of your Bible, and we've been making this joke. They're the parts of your Bible that the pages are still stuck together because we don't spend a lot of time in there. But we call the minor prophets the minor prophets, not because they're less important, but because they're shorter. That's simply the only reason why. And these minor prophets, these 12 books, tell us the story of the end of the Old Testament before the 400 years before Jesus came. And they're not less important than prophets such as Isaiah and Ezekiel, but they're simply shorter books. And we've seen so far that the minor prophets have a major message. And we're looking at the minor prophets for two reasons. One, that these are books that if we're honest, we probably haven't spent a lot of time. And I've had some of you tell me uh, you've actually never read those. And we don't say that to have any of us filled with shame. Just the reality is we don't spend a lot of time reading those, so we want to spend some time doing it. And second, because the minor prophets help us see a clear picture of who God is and who we are. We've seen some of the attributes of God as we've gone through these minor prophets, and we see some of the tendencies of us as humans. And last week, we looked at the book of Joel, and this week, if you're following along, you have a couple minutes to look for it here. Open the table of contents of your Bible if you need to. We're heading to the next book, which is the book of Amos. Now, when we hear the word Amos, most of us think uh, of this guy, right? Famous Amos. Right? This is usually the first thing that comes to mind when we think of Amos. And Famous Amos, he's got a great story. If you've actually uh, read the story or heard the story of Famous Amos and the man who invented these cookies uh, that started off as boutique cookies and ended up just being what they are today, you can decide if they're boutique or not. Uh, but we, this is what we really think of when we usually think of the word Amos. Now, let me ask you guys, how many of you, is there anyone in here who's been, if you remember, we gave a challenge at the beginning of this series uh, to read each book because they're shorter. How many of you read the entire book of Hosea? Okay. How many of you read the entire book of Joel last week? So how many of you have read everything so far? Okay. Guess what? I got some famous Amos cookies for you. Here you go. <laughs> 
I don't know if I can get this one all the way back there. They're up here for you. If you, I'm going to do this on the honor system, if you have been reading all of Hosea and all of Joel, I encourage you uh, to come up here. We didn't have that many raise their hands. There should be enough here. Grab some famous Amos on your way out. I'll leave them up there. We'll know, God will know if you, okay. So what do we know about the original famous Amos? Uh, Amos lived in the southern kingdom of Judah. And he lived during the time of Hosea, very similar time period to the first book that we looked at around 750 BC. And here's what we know about Amos. He wasn't a professional prophet. Most of these guys that we've been studying so far, uh, and most of them in general, they lived a life where they were known as being a prophet. But Amos was just a regular guy. He was actually a, a shepherd. We also find out later in our book as we read through it that he was a fig farmer. He was a blue-collar type guy. He had no formal training necessarily to be a prophet, but God called him to be a prophet for the people. We've also seen the importance of names of these prophets, and Amos's name has a very strong connection with the message that he's sharing. Amos's name means burden-bearer. And as we're going to see, Amos was carrying a heavy load. So if you've got your Bible, open up to Amos. We're going to be starting in chapter 1. We're going to be skipping through in here as we've we've done the last few weeks. It's impossible for us to cover the entire book, so I'm going to give you kind of a 50,000-foot view of Amos as we go through. So keep your Bibles open. A lot of the passages will be on the screen, but it'll help you to kind of see some of the flow as we go. So let's start in verse 1. It says, This message was given to Amos, a shepherd from the town of Tekoa in Judah. He received this message in visions two years before the earthquake. There's apparently a great earthquake that people mark time by. When Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, was king of Israel. And here's what it says, starting in verse 3. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Now, what does that mean? We're going to see this phrase, three, not for four, uh, all throughout the first chapter of this book. It's kind of a a literary device. It's basically saying three in this this Jewish culture would have been uh, enough. Kind of like three strikes and you're out. And God is saying here, there's three sins, nope, for four. This is, we're gone, we've gone past how much I can stand of this. And then what we see throughout here for this, these next several verses, if you've got your Bible, we're not going to read through them, but you can skim through them, and then you can read it this week uh, as we go through the book of Amos, and maybe you'll get some cookies next week, no promises. But. We see that there's a series of people, groups, that are called out. The first one is Damascus. The people of Damascus, it says, have sinned again and again. And here's what it says in verse 3. It says, Because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire on the house of Hazel that will consume the fortress of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kerr. Now these, these, these places don't mean much to us at all. We can see that some bad stuff is happening to Damascus because of some sin that it had done the way it had treated these lands that are listed there. And then if you're looking and you're following your Bible, you see the same thing happens. This is what the Lord says, for the sins of, now it's Gaza, even for four, for three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent. 
then Tyre, then Edom, then Ammon, then Moab, and then Judah. And the people of Israel, those are the main people we're looking at this week, man, they just had to be loving this. God is issuing all these, these punishments on all the neighboring nations. You'll see up here on the screen this picture here. You see Tyre and Ammon and Moab and Eden and Gaza and Damascus. And Israel's got to be sitting there, yeah, give it to them, God. But we know what's coming, don't we? Now, the Israelites, they probably didn't expect this. They were excited that all of these judgments were being pronounced on their enemies. But can you imagine when we see the next verse? He says, And for three, even four, judgments against Israel. The people are probably thinking, What? What? What is he saying? Here's the first thing we learn in this book here this morning. That God will judge the nations. God will judge the nations. The sins of the world matter. But we have to look at the speck in our own eye first. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye? When all the time there's a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will clearly see to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now this passage here, Jesus isn't trying to say we should ignore sin, but the speck and the plank, both of them need to be taken out. Both are bad. But it's easy for us to continually look at the moral decay of the people around us, the nations around us, the world around us, in an us-versus-them mentality without recognizing the sin of our own nation, of our own families, of our own churches, and of our own hearts. So what was Israel's sin? Starting in verse 6, this is what the Lord says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor and on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. It's a pretty serious list of grievances, of sins, of God's people. They take advantage of the oppressed, enslaving people, abusing widows and orphans, gaining their wealth at the expense of the poor. That's what this passage is telling us. And living an easy life when others are suffering. And we see that this injustice is brought about by the people's idolatry. Now we've seen idolatry as a theme so far in both Hosea and Joel. And we see how the people were cheating on God and how that affected the way they treated God. We saw that in Hosea. And here in Amos, we see that same idolatry. This is the same group of people. How that same idolatry now is affecting how they treat others. And this helps us to see what God's trying to get us to understand. That it's not just about what you do to God, it's about what you do to others. 
If you have a relationship with God, you have to take care of those around you. Love God and love others. It's two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Now remember, idolatry, as we talked about, isn't just having statues in your house that you worship. Idolatry is anything in your life that takes the place of God. And here in Amos, the idols were power, money, excess. See, when life is centered around those idols, when it becomes our heart's desire, it doesn't just affect what's going on in our hearts. It affects how we treat those around us. And here's the main theme of the book of Amos. How we treat the vulnerable and the marginalized is a reflection of our relationship with God. How we treat what we often see in the New Testament called the least of these. How we treat the vulnerable and the marginalized is a direct reflection of how our relationship with God is going. See, God is a God of justice, and the people of Israel, they were guilty of injustice, terrible acts of abuse of their power. They broke the second part of the greatest commandment. We're to love God and to love others. Poverty, lack of education, sexual exploitation, care for others, those who are exploited for corporate greed, racial inequality, it's all part of loving others. And we see in the book of Amos, as you spend this week reading through chapters 1, 2, and 3, you're going to see this list of all of those things happening. God's people living unjustly in the way they treated others. It's important to God. Justice is important to God. It must be important to us. And here's why this breaks the heart of God so much. In chapter 3, starting in verse 2, he says, From among all the families on the earth, I have known only you. Therefore, I will punish you for your wrongdoing. These were God's people. God's saying, you were my people. You should have known better. It makes me think of that famous quote from Uncle Ben in Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. But in this case, it's not just the power that comes from being God's chosen people. It's the fact that these people themselves had once been oppressed. They had been the ones on the other side of the situation. They were the least of these. And God's saying, you of all people should not be acting this way. Israel was chosen to be the people that represented God. They were to shine a light, to live differently, to be different. I heard it expressed this way. It says God was saying, you trusted me to save your life, but you don't trust me to tell you how to live your life. And so we read in chapters 3 and 4, we see a picture of the price that Israel will pay for the way it's treating, treating others. Amos chapter 3, verse 15. It says, And I will destroy the beautiful homes of the wealthy, their winter mansions and their summer houses too, all their palaces filled with ivory, says the Lord. Again, the problem isn't that Israel had a lot. God had blessed them. And there's nothing inherently wrong with having a summer house or a winter house or going to Florida for the winter. It's that they had ignored the needs of others. And worse, they were profiting off of the vulnerable. 
And they didn't just ignore the oppressed, but their wealth was built on the exploitation of others. See, Israel was concerned with building its own kingdom, and it forgot about God's kingdom. Israel was so concerned with building up its own kingdom that it had forgotten that they were part of God's kingdom. And we, we see all throughout the next chapter in here, the people didn't like this. They didn't like hearing this. They liked the way things were. They liked the system that they had built on the backs of others. We see in chapter, 10 verse, or chapter 7, verse 10, the introduction of one of the priests named Amaziah. And Amaziah, he's supposed to be the best of the best. He's one of the temple priests. He's one of the godly men. And he goes to the king and he says, we have to shut this guy up. Because his own kingdom was built on the backs of others. He didn't want to hear what Amos had to say because Amos was upsetting the system. See, people in power, even the religious, often don't want to hear when they've fallen short. And they don't want to know where they've fallen short. Have you ever been confronted with your sin and instead of stopping and listening to the accusations, you jump to your own defenses? I know I have. And it's often because I don't want to give up whatever it is that's in question. Because it's about me. It's about what I want. Helping ourselves, building my own little kingdom, protecting what's mine. But the people of Israel, their appetites for excess had grown so much that in fact, it began to take on a look of its own. We see in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Hear this, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. So wait, he's talking to the cows now? Now, a more direct translation of this would read like this. Listen to me, you fat cows living in Samaria. Here's what he's talking about here. He says, you women who oppress the poor and the needy. He calls them fat cows. I know it's terrible. It's not politically correct, but he's had enough. He says, you say to your husbands, bring us some drink. And he goes on and he lays out the punishment for these people. I'm imagining a bunch of women kind of like the real housewives of whatever town you want to picture here. They care about their brand. They don't care who they step on to get what they want. They're all about the way they look. And to make matters worse, they're still acting like everything is fine. Like everything is fine between them and God. God says in verse 4, he's, he, I love this. He says this sarcastically. You can hear the sarcasm in his voice. After he calls them fat cows, he says, Go ahead and offer sacrifices to the idols at Bethel. Keep on disobeying at Gilgal. Offer sacrifices each morning and bring your tithes every three days. Present your bread made of yeast as an offering of thanksgiving. Then give your extra voluntary offerings so you can brag about it everywhere. This is the kind of thing you Israelites love to do, says the sovereign Lord. He goes on, he says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. 
A.W. Tozer says, Christians don't tell lies, they sing them. He says, away with your music. Keep coming to church, giving your offerings, strutting your stuff, showing how good you are. But you oppress the poor. You only care about yourselves. It's so easy for us to come to church. We may even be known by our friends to be Christians. We might sing the songs. But we're just often going through the motions. We've seen two similar verses to this in the two minor prophets we've looked at so far. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. And then last week in Joel, don't tear your clothing in your grief. In other words, don't just do this religious symbolism, but tear your hearts instead. And here, this theme continues. I don't want your offerings, your worship, your songs when you're treating others this way. And then we get to probably the most famous passage in Amos. Amos chapter 5. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. For the NLT says, instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. In chapter 7, we see three visions that Amos is given from the Lord. And these visions help Amos to see and for us to see what justice and righteousness look like. In chapter 7, verse 7, he says, Then he showed me another vision. I saw the Lord standing beside a wall that had been built using a plumb line. He was using a plumb line to see if it was still straight. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? He answered, a plumb line. And the Lord replied, I will test my people with this plumb line. I will no longer ignore their sins. Now, how many of you are familiar with a plumb line? When I brought it up this morning, some of our folks didn't know what it was. I'll be honest. Anybody who knows me knows I'm not a construction-y type guy. I had to go buy this for this. But a plumb line is this weight stuck on the end of this string. And the purpose of it is to help builders know to keep the wall straight. Now, today, of course, we have lasers and different things that do this, but this helps keep things perfectly aligned. And Amos, through God, God tells Amos, he says, I am going to set up a plumb line. I'm going to show you what it looks like to live with justice and righteousness. I'm going to establish a standard. See, the problem is, if you're like me, when you're trying to hang a picture, or if you are, you know, really want to get out there and want to build a wall, I probably will look at it, and it looks straight to me, but without a plumb line, it's never going to be exactly straight. And what can tend to happen, it might look straight at the beginning, but the further up the wall goes, the more crooked it gets. God is saying, I will establish a plumb line. I will establish the standard. The plumb line becomes the standard. And it has to be God's plumb line. See, the people, they had kind of created their own. They had taken some of what God had said, but, but they had kind of tweaked it just a little bit. It was no longer a dead straight line. 
See, his plumb line is both the endless river of righteous living that defines our standard for sexuality, how we express that sexuality in the relationship between a man and a woman, but it's also the plumb line that's a mighty flood of justice that defines how we treat those who are trapped in poverty. We continually find ourselves, our, our lives trying to be aligned with this line, the, the line of justice and righteousness. It's his plumb line of righteous living that defines the sanctity of all life. And it's the flood of justice that fights systems of inequality. It's the line of righteous living that defines what we fill our hearts and our minds with, what we use, what we consume in our entertainment. And it's the flood of justice that refuses to be part of greed. There has to be a standard. God says, I'm going to establish the plumb line. Israel, can you see how you're not lining up to this? Isaiah chapter 40 says, Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. He'll smooth it out. The line will become smooth. The people of Israel had grown crooked. They still had a line. It just wasn't God's line anymore. It still appeared straight. There was parts of it they were still going to church. They were still paying the tithes. They were still offering the sacrifices. They were still singing the songs. But their lives weren't aligned to the line. We see this spoken about in Philippians chapter 2. In verse 14 it says, Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. The world will see the standard in us. This needs to start with us. We're supposed to be a living plumb line for the world. Uh, this weekend I was watching a documentary on the Church Hill song. Some of you might have seen it. If you're not familiar, Hillsong is a megachurch that started in Australia. And at one time, they were most known for their worship music, which for the most part is some of the greatest Christian music written in the last several decades. But more recently, they've been known for something other than their music, and that's their celebrity status pastor of their New York congregation, Carl Lentz. And Carl was well known for his parties with the Kardashians and his lavish lifestyle and ultimately multiple affairs. And the Washington Post wrote an article on this documentary, the Washington Post. And this is what they said. A megachurch exposed, this is the name of the documentary, aims to spotlight the many alleged wrongdoings of Hillsong, which now has locations in 30 countries. It airs allegations that Hillsong's leadership got rich off donations while heavily exploiting volunteer labor. And it argues that pastors have engaged in extramarital affairs and mishandled accusations of sexual misconduct by church staff despite the ev teaching the evils of impurity and lying. Now, Hillsong's story gets a lot darker if you know it as more and more has come to light. But these are people, the Washington Post, outside the church, 
who noticed this well before any of the illegal activities that have come up now were brought up because the world saw people that were supposed to be God's plumb line living crooked. Both righteousness and justice had gone crooked. Now, I don't agree with a lot of Hillsong's doctrine, and I'm not trying to draw a straight line between Israel, what we see in Amos and Hillsong, or our church, or any church, or any of us for that matter, but I can't help but seeing the parallels in that story. Exploiting people, getting rich off the backs of others, sexual immorality. See, when people, even those in a relationship with God, live for their own kingdoms, it always ends up affecting others negatively. Hillsong had lost its plumb line. James chapter 1, 27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, care for widows and orphans isn't the only thing we're supposed to do. What James is trying to tell us is they're the vulnerable. And to keep yourself from being polluted, to keep yourself aligned with the plumb line. It's not one or the other to do good things for others or to live a pure life. It's love God and love others. You can't do one without the other. Now that's just a flyover of the book of Amos and to be honest, unlike some of these we've looked at so far, there's not a lot of hope in here. Amos doesn't end with a lot of good things. Remember, he was the burden bearer. He had to help Israel to see the idolatry in its heart, its desire to build its own kingdom and how that was affecting the way they were treating others. But we have been asking this question each week. Where is Jesus in the Minor Prophets? Jesus is our plumb line. Jesus is the standard. He was sent as the standard because we couldn't get it through our thick skulls. The line that God established And so Jesus becomes the standard for us to measure our righteousness and our justice against. He came as the living plumb line to say, this is what it looks like to let justice roll, to live a righteous life. So I want to ask you this morning, what standard are you building your life on? Are your walls straight? Have you lost sight of your own plumb line, of God's plumb line? Does the way you treat your family reflect God's plumb line? Does the way you treat your coworkers reflect God's plumb line? Does the way you treat those you disagree with, does it reflect God's plumb line? Does the way that you treat those who sin differently than you do, does it reflect God's plumb line? Justice and righteousness. If you're realizing your walls are starting to tilt Maybe your life has become a little crooked. The Lord can restore you. He restores me daily, helps me to see the plumb line. We just have to ask. And so if you think even in this moment, as, and as you're reading Amos this week, my life is not straight. I'm not letting justice and righteousness reign in my life. It's not too late. You can change that. If you want to come up at the end of service or in a moment, we'll have people up here that can pray with you, 
meet you in the welcome desk if you have any questions about how you can get on the right track. But here's something I want to encourage you to do. Read Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. It says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Put me to the test and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any hurtful way in me. And lead me to everlasting. Ask God to search you. Show you where your life is not aligned with the plumb line. Where you've started to build your own kingdom that affects how you deal with others. How you treat others. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for these minor prophets and their stories that they share with us, the warnings that they give to us even today, Lord. God, those of us in this room, most of us live well, well and would be considered rich by most of the world. Lord, help us to see the ways that we're letting that drive, that desire for more to build our own kingdoms become an idol in our life that not only affects our relationship with you, but it affects how we treat those around us, how we look at the poor, how we look at those who are less fortunate than us, how we look at those who maybe have fallen short in ways we haven't. Lord, help us to live against your plumb line. Lord, forgive us for the times that we have not let justice and righteousness flow out of us. But help us to be a people that when the world looks at us, they don't see people who are living crooked lives, but they see people who are centered on you. Our lives being a reflection of your standard. Not perfect, but growing to be more aligned with your plumb line, your standard. God, may justice roll. May mercy flow. May righteousness pour out of us as we build our lives on a solid foundation of you. In Christ's name we pray.